Thank you for your practice tonight. Full room. Glad you're all here. Um, there's something about this time of year for me that is um, very inspirational and also quite sad. Can't quite put my finger on it. I think part of it has something to do with uh, being from New England, and there's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you can't help but be aware of the changing of the seasons with the leaves falling and the weather getting cold, and the, the autumn, or the fall in New England, if you've never been there, is really quite amazing. Uh, it's actually quite amazing here, but the New England fall is really uh, a wonderful thing. And so, the, in, in for a number of other reasons, which I'll speak to a little bit tonight, uh, this time of year uh, put me in some amount of reflection, um, kind of this middle place of looking back on the last year, looking back on, on life and, and reflecting on what, what the experience has been thus far, and also the, uh, the changing of the seasons kind of brings with it a sometimes a sense of death or a sense of something coming to an end, um, which is both refreshing and depressing, actually. Something that I've, I've termed this, uh, this term that I use called grateful sorrow, where there's a, and there can often be an overwhelming experience of actually both. <coughs> and, and that can be a kind of confusing or a very interesting place to land. So I wanted to really bring it back to um, one of the first things that the uh, Buddha offered when he went back to meet his, the five aesthetics he'd been practicing with doing this really intense basic mortification practice, which aesthetic practice, which wasn't working. After he kind of awoke under the Bodhi tree and, and had the experience he had, he went back to these five guys and said, oh, these guys will get it. They'll understand what, I'm, what I've realized. And he starts off by saying one of the most famous things he's known for saying, and one of the things that I take for granted <coughs> is he talks about the reality of birth, old age, sickness, and death. The first thing he says is he talks about uh, birth is painful, old age is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. And he puts us in a place where there's really no room for denial within this practice. There's really no room for that. And so we're all aware of this reality of that, you know, obviously you were born. You're older than you used to be. Uh, you're growing older each moment, each day, each year. You've been sick, probably before. You're going to get sick again. Uh, and you're going to die. We're all going to die. And everybody totally knows that that's true. And um, so sometimes I think about... Death has been a really, really important part of my life because I had so much of it. Uh, 
at a very, very early age, I was painfully aware of death and loss. And so sometimes it's in, for us to just reflect, like, when was the first time you knew somebody who died? You know, do you remember? Were you a kid? Were you a teenager? Were you an adult? You know, the first experience of knowing that people died, but then actually knowing somebody who, that you knew who was alive, and then they were gone. Whether it was a grandparent or a relative or somebody from your school or whatever. You know, what was that like? That reality of like, oh yeah, that's really real. You know, when did you know that? When did you experience that? Uh, and how, how has that played out? In your life, in your awareness, and how much do we deny that reality? And so the Buddha really set out, he kind of, I really experienced the reason what motivated him to practice and to kind of discover what he discovered was that motivation of that kind of deep, deep question of what is this life for, really? If these four things are true, then what's the point? Why, why, why is this life important or how can it be important or what can I do? What can be done? And of course we have an abundance of religions and an abundance of ways that people are addressing that reality. Most of it, I feel, is to console us. Most of it is that this life after death business, which the Buddha actually doesn't offer. He's much more interested in this life. And, what, and he's much, much more interested in this birth, in this experience, in this moment. And he doesn't really actually address those deeper questions of, where were you before you were born, and where do you go after you die? He actually avoids all of those questions and actually says that you shouldn't even bother with those kinds of questions. That you should get busy living the life that you have and not be so concerned with that. And we, we don't think about this so much. For me, it's really um, prevalent... I, um, my sister, ex-husband, was killed in a car accident yesterday. And, um, and so I was kind of thinking about that a little bit. And, you know, he, this guy, this person, really, my sister's ex-husband, has been a real pain in the ass to my family and has been really bad to my sister. But they have a son. And... I've been trying to keep my perspective in the experience of this little boy, this 11-year-old boy who, whose father is dead now. And, you know, what is that, you know, what is that experience going to be like, you know, and all of the ways in which, you know, like, he's at the hospital and no one knows what to talk, how to talk to him or what to say or when to tell him or how to tell him or all of that kind of confusion. And I was talking to, um, I actually had got to have a conversation with my mom two days ago, a conversation that I'd probably been waiting 25 years to have. And actually, when I was 11, when I was my nephew's age, my sister was killed in a car accident. And the circumstances were quite similar. It was one of those situations where she was in the car accident but didn't die in the car accident and was brought to the hospital. And... I was told at the age of 11 that my sister was totally going to be fine and not to worry. And that she was in the hospital and that 
So I was never, I, I wanted to go see her. I wasn't allowed to go see her. And I had to continue to go to school. And then two weeks later, my parents let me stay home from school and they told me that she actually had died. And I was so fucking pissed. In fact, I had a lot of resentment against my parents for many years because of that. What I experienced is they lied to me. You know, they lied to me. They told me she was going to be fine. And then actually years later, I, I you know, got the information <clears throat> that they knew all along that she actually wasn't going to be fine. That as soon as the accident, as soon as she was brought into the hospital, that she was like, at best, going to be a vegetable. Just totally brain dead. And so I carried that resentment for many, many years. And I got to talk to my sister. I said, don't do what mom and dad did to me. I was like, you've got to bring him to the hospital. Now you've got to let him go through this process. And I knew how difficult that was. How culturally we're so in, much in denial of that reality and that we don't even know what to say to people. You know, when you meet somebody or one of your friends or you get that news that somebody died, we, we don't even really know what to say. Maybe you do. I always find it to be a pretty uncomfortable experience. And so it was interesting to be able to actually have this conversation with my mom of like, actually, you know, by the way, <laughs> I was very resentful. And of course, and then it was a lot of it was of blaming my parents and not having the opportunity to see her. And then, and then the really fucking weird thing of like funeral homes and caskets and open caskets and and they brought me to see my sister two weeks later at my grandparents owned a, not my grandparents, my grandparents, my grandfather's brother owned a funeral home and they let me go see my sister in the casket. And, and I wish they actually had let me go to the hospital but not let me go to the funeral home. And I'll never forget my grandmother and her best attempts to be consoling. I remember looking at my dead sister in the casket, looked like dressed up like she was going to go to the fucking prom. You know, a dress and all that. And my grandmother said to me, doesn't she look good? And I remember thinking, no, she doesn't fucking look good, actually. And just and at 11 years old, sitting there with the, being like, is this what people do? Is this, is this, you know, just getting this overwhelming sense of like, what the fuck? And then, of course, having to go back to school the week, a week later and getting treated like, you know, 11-year-old kids don't really... We don't even know what to say as adults, but what do 11-year-old kids in my school, they didn't know what to say. So all of a sudden, everybody treated me like I was fucking... I had two heads, which just gave me the sense of something, you know, just, it made it actually worse. And this kind of reality that this is part of, such a part of life. One of the things that I like about the, um, the Buddhist tradition is that even monastics, I don't do this so much, but monastic monks, Theravadan Buddhist monks, they actually meditate on death every morning. They meditate on the, on the certainty of death, on the reality of death, and the uncertainty of the time of it. That, that, that just that total paradox of like you know you're going to die and you actually kind of have no idea when. And I don't say all of this to be gloomy as much as to say it to be what puts us in a place where we start to ask ourselves the deeper questions of like, 
you know, how am I living my life? What is important to me? And how caught up we get into the just little bullshit, the little minutiae details of day-to-day living without ever considering the fact that it's all going to end anyway. And how much time do we waste and how much suffering do we engage in just with just the little minutiae of everyday American life and how much we suffer over that. And then at 18, after I started to kind of come out of my shell a little bit, at 18, um, when I moved out of my parents' house and I was living in my first apartment. And I hooked up with this girl and we were kind of going out. We hadn't been together very long. But she got killed in a car accident. And I was there. I saw it. We both got hit by a, a drunk driver. Got run down. I lived. She died. And then it's like it all came back again. It was like I was just starting to feel good about life again. And then this happened. And then I got, um, so I really had a lot of just, that was very traumatic and I actually couldn't work. I was very much in a state of, I don't even know what you call it, shock maybe. I really just was like, I couldn't even grasp why people went to work every day or I just couldn't even make sense of the way that the world was. I was just got this deep sense of, what the fuck is this for? Why am I here? What is, what is the point of all this? It's all this tragedy and everybody dies and kind of that really dark existential place of like, What's the point? If it all just ends and it's all just death and it's all just like that, why are we even living? And I, at this time, I was introduced to this practice. I was introduced to the Dharma. And I remember the first time <clears throat> speaking with the first Dharma teacher who uh, had really been a huge source of inspiration and a huge benefit for me over these years, uh, telling him these stories of my life and him just really acknowledging and, and normalizing, like, yeah, like this is definitely how it is. In the reframe of, like, okay, like if that's true, these, you know, the Buddha offers five reflections of acknowledging the old age that we're all going to grow old, we're all going to get sick, we're all going to die. Every relationship that you'll ever be in will end in separation. And that the only thing that we really actually have are our actions. And at that point, I felt very much relieved. I was like, okay, yeah, okay. And he really talked about, this is where Buddhism gets kind of hectic or scary for some people, is that the fact that the Buddha does not acknowledge and does not really allow for any denial around this type of stuff. And he actually asks us to face it in a deep way. And for me, it was a tremendous relief, and it also put me in a place of there's actually a tremendous amount of wisdom that comes from that kind of suffering or that kind of loss or that kind of grief or whatever, because it really puts us in a place where we start to question what we do. You know, oftentimes, over the years, I've met people who come on the other, you know, for many years, people would actually come to me or talked to me when they went through a similar experience because a lot of people knew that I had had that. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, it puts people oftentimes in a place where they start to really question, yeah, like, why am I so caught up in it all? Why am I so caught up in it all if this is the way it is? 
And it's like, what it does, I think, is it's a very, it puts us in a place of empowerment, of like really asking ourselves, well, what the fuck is actually really important to me? Really? You know? What is it that's really important to me? You know? There's a practice, I've never done it, that a lot of, uh, Noah Levine's father wrote a book called A Year to Live, and a lot of, he knows has done it, and a lot of Against the Stream teachers have done it, where they do this practice of like, you actually go through this guided process, they do it in Los Angeles, uh, where you actually pretend, or you, you, you spend a year of your life as if it was your last year. And it really puts us in a place, of if you actually really only had another year to live, what would you do? Oh, like think about that for a second. Like, would you, you know? I bet you a lot of the shit that you're caught up in would become so unimportant. Right? What would you do? And that's kind of the practice is kind of putting us in touch with that part of our experience. What would you do? You know? And it really lets us get back into a place of deep questioning of like, what is really important? To me. And it's so easy to kind of blow all this stuff off, right? It's so easy to just kind of have the attitude that we're invincible and that we're going to live forever and that other people die but not me or uh, these experiences that are so common. And so I've been... This time of year, kind of because of the fact that when, when my girlfriend was killed in that car accident, it was, it was around the fall. And this time of year always has a little bit of that for me. And, you know, I was just really kind of feeling that grateful sorrow of like, oh, I'm so grateful for my life and I'm so grateful for the things that I get to do. And also the reality that it's tremendously sad some of the time. <clears throat> You know, and, I, and I've been on the phone with my mom a little bit. And, and it's, it's a very strange thing to have to be honest about because of the fact that, you know, this person wasn't really... I mean, I, I've met him a few times, but he's not close to me. Um, and then I actually talked to my sister this morning. I actually got to talk to my nephew this morning, and I just couldn't even talk to him. Like, as soon as I heard his voice, I just started crying. And I was just like, in his, his little voice through the phone of like, he's going to go to the hospital today and say bye to his dad. Fuck. You know? And he actually handled it much better than me because he was on Facebook and had saw a picture that I posted yesterday of me in my backyard making a fire. He was like, I saw the picture of your fire. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, he can, like, do this, because I can't fucking do this right now. You know, we talked about the fire. And kind of pulled the attention off of it, you know. And, um, and I was talking to my sister afterwards, and you know, about, like, he's actually going to be fine, you know. Ultimately, he's going to be okay. He's healthy. He's, uh, he's going to be okay. And, and for me, it's like so strange to look back on my life and go, actually, the tragedy of death has been one of the things that has actually been, meant, meant the most to me. It's been one of the things that's really allowed me to live from a place of where I'm really in touch much more with what's important to me because of that. 
and to have that wisdom and to know that, you know, how is it going to play out for him ultimately and, uh, and talking to my sister and being like, yeah, he's going to be a little fucked up about this for the rest of his life. It's always going to haunt him a little bit. It's always going to color the way he views the world. And it might actually turn out to be one of the things that really uh, puts him on a path that might be a deeper, better path for him. And you know, and like the reality of it's like, it's kind of not okay to say that, right? There's so much of that part of it that's just so strange the way that we talk about, or the way that we have so much denial around death. And that for me, it's been some of the, you know, it's been the, that part of my life. Yeah, I certainly would not be sitting here right now if that had not happened to me. You know, I don't even, I can't even imagine what my life would look like without that kind of constant reminder of, you know, that constant reminder of, like, this is actually going to end. And how do you want to spend your fucking time here? You know? How do you want to spend your time here? And it puts us in a place of just really this kind of cal- almost counterculture idea of, like, you know, because the American dream says, oh, no. The American dream almost even promises eternal happiness, doesn't it? A little bit, it kind of carries with it that that piece about it. And so that's the first thing he says, right? Birth, old age, sickness, and death. And, you know, the existential crisis that kind of comes with that. And, you know, I think that when we start to you know, reflect on kind of why you, you know, why would you come to a meditation class or why would you be interested in Buddhism or why would you want to meditate? I think that many of us almost get motivated by some deeper calling or even some deeper sense of sadness. We, we kind of all struggle with this question to some degree, don't we? You know, we all kind of know that this is part of life. And what would it be like, or what would, you know, what, would, what would your life look like if you actually had a little bit more consideration around that reality? You know, would, you, would you do what you're doing? Would you live the way that you live? And I think what it does is it puts us in a place where we actually are much more able to overcome just the day-to-day fear. You know, of, of just the worldly fear of financial insecurity and status and relationship status and all of the stuff that where taught is so very important, maybe becomes not as important. And it's very interesting to me that the final of the fifth reflections is the Buddha asking us to reflect and to acknowledge the truth that we're going to age and we're going to get old and we're going to get sick and we're going to die and every relationship is going to end in separation. And the fifth one is interesting. He says, the only actions, the only thing that you own is, is your actions. And so really the only thing that you actually own is your life. Is the way that you live. And then I think about the initial instruction on 
mindfulness practice. Breathe in and know you're breathing in. You know, that actually like that first, uh, that, the, the life and death of a breath, right? Like you come into the world breathing in, you go out of the world breathing out. You know, that just the experience of just a whole in and out breath being a whole lifetime. And that, that the pulse of life itself, what actually allows us to be here is our breath. And oftentimes we can have the attitude of, that's boring. I don't want to just sit here with my eyes closed and pay attention to my breathing. I have shit to do. I have more important things to do than to be alive. And that he, that he really, at the core of practice of mindfulness, is really he's asking us to really embody the living, breathing bodies that we have. Breathe in, know that you're breathing in. You know, to, to actually really try to attune your awareness to the pulse of life itself. And really give this an opportunity to have some gratitude or some appreciation. And from the Buddhist perspective, being born into the human form is considered to be one of the highest rebirths that you can get. And it's just such a wonderful thing to actually have the opportunity to live a human life and to the potential Buddha meaning to awaken and that we all have the potential to end suffering in this life and that the human realm the human experience is, is an opportunity to do that to really work with suffering and craving and life and death and all of these things and that we can actually live in balance with all of that is what the, is what the promise is is what the practice is is to really is to live and into you know the present time awareness of living the day that you're in and, and, and stop living in the past and the future. Stop falling asleep into your mind and actually to wake up to the life that you have, the life that you're living right now. Instead of imagining it, how, how, how much better it could be if only. You know, if only things were more like this, if only things were more like that. We fall asleep into that part of our mind that tells us our life would be better, our life would be better if constantly trying to measure up against some ideal that we've created in our imagination and the suffering of that. And so the whole of the practice is trying to get us into the eternal experience of the present moment. And the Buddha is saying that all of the practices end or merge in the deathless and that what he awoken to was the reality of the deathless, that, that which does not die. the liberation of mind. The body dies, but the mind continues. And to trying to embody that experience. And so I am leaving. So this will be the last Sunday that I teach for a while. I'm actually going to sit for five weeks. Going to sit with a... Going to Massachusetts, where... I grew up where I'm going really very much home for me is back to IMS where I learned to practice, back to the Forest Refuge, up in Joseph Goldstein's backyard at the Forest Monastery uh, with uh, sitting with a group of Thai forest monks for five weeks. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, to going to sit and I'm really grateful that I'm able to set my life up at this point so I can actually go and do that and, then, and hopefully bring some, some of what I learned back to all of you as we continue to uh, practice together. So, thank you. If you have any questions, comments, I'd love to hear. 
uh, anything that you have to say in relation to anything that I've said this evening. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.